0: Welcome to the Inside Data Centre podcast. I'm Andy Davis and in this podcast I will interview the people working in the data centre sector and tell their stories. If you are working in the DC sector or you are looking to work in the sector then this is the podcast for you. Welcome to the Inside Data Centre podcast. Today I'm joined by Aaron Chenoy, CMO and SVP of Global Sales at Serverfarm. Good morning Aaron.
1: Morning Andy, lovely to join you.
0: Uh, thanks for coming on. Been looking forward to speaking to you. Server Farm, got a lot going on at the moment, obviously, a lot of activity, and, and I know you've got some uh, great opinions on some of the topics we're going to cover today. So, really looking forward to it. Before we start, do you just want to ha- give a quick introduction of who you are and what you do at Server Farm? Uh, sure. Yep. So,
1: as you said, Andy Aaron Chenoy, uh, Chief Marketing Officer and uh, Head of Global Sales, uh, based in London uh, as a company, we're headquartered in LA. Uh, and i guess we'll we'll talk a little bit about you know who who we are as a company and what we're trying to do um i've been kicking around the data center industry since the late 80s uh, in, in sort of various guises both in you know kind of in the it space and in the i guess the infrastructure space both in the vendor space and also in the client space so i've got a I guess a sort of a fairly broad view of, of the industry in terms of how it's developed the last sort of 30 something years. Um, yeah. You know, that's not to say that I know everything, but, you know, there's a sort of a couple of things that I've become, you know, quite passionate about and, and they've largely driven, you know, where I've gone, you know, as a person where, you know, where I've, uh, you know, where I've developed my career, who I've chosen to work with. Um, and, you know, we're in an industry, I guess, of no no shortage of work and no shortage of entertainment. So, you know, it's almost it's almost a hobby that I get paid for, which is, I guess, you know, a good description of a good job, isn't it?
0: Definitely. And one thing I always say about the, the data center sector is that nearly everybody you speak to absolutely loves the industry. And I think that's evident from a lot of the conversations I have. But also when you meet people from the sector, you know, in, in any environment, everyone is very passionate. About what they do. Um, where I always like to start is go back to the beginning of your career. I did a bit of LinkedIn stalking, as I'm sort of getting renowned for doing now, and I, I noticed you started your career in electronic engineering. I just wondered, you know, was engineering something you were always looking to move into when you were a child?
1: Uh, no, is, is the short answer. And and it's amazing how many people in in our industry have sort of arrived by accident. Um, And I think part of that is, you know, going back, I guess, to the start of the industry, it wasn't really an industry. So nobody said, oh, I want to go into that space. Um, But I guess a short version of the story. And I I have to share you. I've I've got to show you a book. Um, So God's Graves and Scholars. And I was kind of looking at the the kind of the inside leaf. And this edition was printed in 1974. And would you believe in 1974 cost four pounds and ninety five pence. I mean that was an expensive book in those days, and this was given to me. I don't know when I was maybe eight or nine. I was a, I was a very avid reader as a child, and it, you know there's a really interesting kind of opening in the book. I just have to kind of read it through because uh, it it sort of conveys you know the message quite well. If I can find it, sorry for all the page rustling, but it says my book was written without scholarly pretensions, and somebody gave it to me, and I and I. You know, I, mean, I think I was nine. I opened the book and I thought, "Oh, well, this is going to be quite an interesting story," just from that first line. And of course, it turns out that it is, you know, an incredibly comprehensive book about the story of archaeology, and it covers everything from, you know, South American, uh, you know, civilizations to South Asian civilizations to the Egyptians to the Mesopotamians, and so on okay. and so forth. Anyway, got me totally hooked, and I pretty much spent you know, all of my time, you know, sort of going through school until I guess I got to, you know, sort of A-level age, really wanting to be an archaeologist. I mean, really wanting to be an archaeologist. And, you know, I I don't know if you know, but I grew up in India. So I went to school in India and I came to the UK to to do my last two years of school at A-level. At which point in time, my father sort of reminded me that if i go to university he was going to be footing the bill so it's probably a good idea that he has some say in what i should do and and he was an engineer so you know he I, I think he convinced me by the way i mean this is this is all a very good outcome in the end he convinced me that i should take on you know an engineering course so i i went into electronic engineering um i actually spent a year at ibm between school and university sort of cemented, you know, the fact that I wanted to be, you know, a chip designer. Um, so I went into electronic engineering to be a chip designer. And that was, you know, in the late 80s, when there was still quite a sort of vibrant, you know, chip design community in the UK, of course, no longer exists. And in my final year at university, I fell in love with software. Um, I decided that I would do my final year project. Uh, as, as a software project, which nobody had considered, you know, I had to, you know, I had to apply to the dean of the university for a dispensation to do that, and it took quite some sort of, you know, convincing and selling. Anyway, I I ended up doing a software project whilst I was on a hardware, you know, electronic engineering course, very unusual, but that sort of I think that that was probably the first sort of turn in the road that I took. So I went down the software route. Um, I guess went uh, you know worked for a, for a small software company for a few years uh, straight out of university. Uh, then spent about fifteen years at Intel, doing lots of different things. Um, you know, and then through you know a few startups in the Middle East, uh, in the UK, uh, worked for ABB for a while, uh, worked for Schneider for a few years, and you know have been at Server Farm since. Um, so you know. Lots of variety in the career. But I guess to go back to your question, I, I still wonder whether I might have made a good Indiana Jones, but I, I'll never know. I still have the book, though. You know, very, it's a very treasured very treasured possession.
0: No, it's a great story. And I think, again, there's a few points in there, isn't there, around the fact that a lot of us do follow our parents into their careers, and we, we are guided by those that we trust. And obviously, our parents are the people we trust most in most cases Um, and also the fact that to impact uh, someone's decisions around their career you do need to influence them fairly early in their career you know you're an example of like at age nine and ten you were already considering what you wanted to do long term and I think sometimes we're targeting people 16 to 18 when a lot of the time they've already made that decision that's absolutely right and I think you know I
1: I, you know and I don't know whether I was grumpy about it or angry about it not absolutely not the case and it took me probably 20 years to realize that my father was absolutely right um you know and and you know having you know we we have two sons um you know one of whom is going to be 22 very soon one is 18 um and they have gone down very different paths um now a lot of that is based on you know you know they were brought up in a different country you know in the UK they they had access to you know an education system that was very different um you know to be perfectly frank you know we live a very privileged lifestyle so they had lots of sort of opportunities to do different things and um, you know but as it turns out one uh you know one is studying art history at, at exeter university and and my younger son has a place at oxford to study oriental studies and chinese so not no engineering you know at all um But both of them are going to be amazing in, you know, whatever they choose to do going forward. So I think there's a lot to be said for, you know, guidance from parents, but also, you know, access to opportunities. And you're absolutely right. So many of us, um, you know, are are sort of, you know, filtered down a certain route in that sort of 16 to 18 year old um, kind of age uh, range But the problem is that most of us have arrived at that 16 to 18-year-old age age range having already had some level of filtering going on. Um, And I think part of that is, you know, the education system in in different countries is different. You know, some choose very early, uh, you know, to go down a specialisation route, some don't. Um, So, you know, I think, you know, I guess the, the sort of big picture of this is, you know, there is, you know, there is this sort of, focus around you know transitioning from education into a career quite quickly and quite early in life and i don't know whether you know a 22 year old really knows what they're going to do for the rest of their life and um, and so i guess doing something and i remember having this conversation with my eldest son you know he may not ever be in the sort of history of art world in the sense of writing you know big theses and this sort of thing is deeply interested in the subject. But actually, he ha- he now has research and analytical skills that, frankly, I would love most of the engineers that we hire to to have, um, because he has that ability to look at you know twenty different texts and to interpret the subtext and to come to a conclusion that's based on you know sort of rational you know analysis. Um, so I think you know those those sort of transferable skills become very interesting, but we're still in an industry that's very technical so you know it's really a you know, how do we bring both of those you know the both of those things to the party
0: uh, definitely and a great question and it's one that you know I regularly talk to people about it's about you know recruiting for attributes but you also need the skills it's, it's a fine balance between between the both um, going back to obviously your career in the sector you mentioned earlier that you've been in the sector quite a, quite a number of years so just wondered what have been the key changes you've noticed across your career uh, that's Is a great question. And so I guess I can trace
1: it back to, you know, my sort of time at IBM, uh, you know, before I went to university, I worked in in Hursley in the south of England in in what is, you know, IBM's research labs um, and, and completely by accident. I mean, you know, and it was an amazing time. Um, but we were doing research into storage systems, and, and I remember going to the server room and, you know, installing things and plugging things in and, you know, learning what happens when you, you know, plug things in without having read the process document properly. <laughs> you know, you know, all of those good life lessons. And I think, I, I guess the the world, at least from a data center perspective, if I go all the way back to the 80s, it was a you know one building one tenant model um it was also a one application one server model um it was one department one set of infrastructure models everything was it was almost a i guess it was you know the data center world was a sort of world of walled gardens everybody wanted their little bit and every every little bit had to be somehow individualized. You know, the bricks had to be a certain wall, it had to have a certain type of planting, it had to have a certain type of architecture. And I guess if I if I sort of draw the the sort of the you know the path that's kind of transitions to where we are today, we're now in a world where everything is shared, or as much as possible is shared. Um, you know, again, and I guess cloud is probably you know the the best example of that, where you know as much infrastructure that can be deployed that can be used by as many people as possible, um, you know, so that it's ultimately, you know, more efficient in its use, both in terms of infrastructure and, you know, and the planet, but also cost. I think that's the, you know, that's the big change over time, uh, but that road hasn't been straight, you know, there have been, you know, forks and cul-de-sacs and, you know, quick roads and slow roads and bumpy roads and pothole roads. And you know, and I think that'll continue for some time. You know, we're a, we're a very young industry. We've yet to sort of go through our big sort of industrialization phase, uh, but I think that's the, been the big change. We've gone from you know, my bit has to be mine to a, I'm willing to share.
0: Yeah, definitely, and I think that's evident, and, and probably transitioned at a rapid pace towards that as well over the last you know four to five years. Even if you just look recently, rather than looking back, you know, twenty thirty years, that that transition is moving at a rapid pace right now isn't
1: it it has to uh, it's based on you know the, our, our our entire industry is based on sort of raw materials that are available in finite supply there's a finite amount of land there's a finite amount of energy there's a finite amount of you know the raw materials that go into building infrastructure and i think we've become better as an industry in you know rationalizing as much of that as possible uh, but there is still a lot of uh, wastage is probably the wrong word. I think there's still a lot of you know um stranded things. There are stranded buildings, there are stranded customers, there are stranded applications, there's stranded capacity. Um so there's a lot, there's a lot of reuse, by the way, still possible. Um, you know, we talk about the industry and how quickly it's growing. Um but there is a lot of absorption that can still take place in terms of infrastructure that was built. Frankly, there's nothing wrong with a 20-year-old data centre. You know, castles last hundreds of years. There's no reason why a data centre shouldn't. Obviously, you have to, you know, refresh certain things. Um, and, you know, I guess we'll we'll sort of get to the topic, but that's a big part of, you know, I think what the industry should also look at is it's all very nice to have a shiny new thing, um, but sometimes you know reusing what's already there is 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 actually potentially better
0: yeah definitely and i I did listen to an interview you did previously where you touched on that point yeah we can definitely look at that look at that in a bit but Hmm. let's let's move on to server farm then obviously you know i see a lot of news read a lot of articles and you're very busy at the moment Uh, a lot of activity going on around the world for anyone that doesn't know do you just want to give a brief overview of who server farm are and how you position yourselves Sure. Um, so we
1: are a you know, 25-year-old um, you know, provider of data center services. Um, and we've always kind of taken a view that we're ultimately you know, a, an organization that solves problems for our customers. Um, and that in turn has led to us developing what we think are you know, a very unique set of services to be able to solve that problem. Um, So we solve problems uh, where customers have challenges with real estate. They have too many buildings. The portfolio is too big. There's too much stranded capacity. Uh, They don't want to be in the data center operations business. They need help. They have to partner with someone, you know, who has the skill set and actually the creativity to take a real estate portfolio and consolidate and rationalize, uh, you know, and do those things. Uh, We're also... Um, you know, a particularly good team uh, from a design and construction perspective. Um, very innovative in terms of our designs, um, and very clearly focused on on creating designs that are both innovative without being, you know, so bleeding edge that you know we become, you know, or, or our customers, you know, you know, become our sort of test bed. That that is obviously something that that can never happen. Um, but we're also again, from that sort of design and construction space, very focused on sustainability. And sustainability isn't, by the way, just about having a low PUE. And, um, you know, you might have seen my little April Fool's gag from a couple of weeks ago, um, and I couldn't resist. You know, it's things like reusing buildings, it's things like minimising the amount of concrete or glass or steel, uh, you know, it's being able to, you know, manage infrastructure and You know, just think about that sort of, you know, the bigger picture and and following, you know, the I guess the sort of, you know, the life of a carbon atom from the time it's pulled out of the ground to make some kind of raw material to it being disposed of, you know, at the very end of its life cycle. And, you know, how do we, you know, how do we minimise its impact on the environment as much as we can? Uh, But we've also built an operating business um, and we manage... uh, Over 750 locations now in 45 countries, um, mostly focused in the IT infrastructure space. So, you know, so we're not a facility management company uh, and we have no intention to be that. Um, But again, going back to the, you know, solving customer problems, we're ultimately driven by the fact that almost every one of our customers tells us that they need a data center, but they don't want it. And that is because they might be a car manufacturer. Their core business is making cars. Um, now, our core business isn't making cars, but it's running data centers. You know, very, very efficiently and very sustainably. So we become, you know, a very obvious partner for organizations like that. And whether they're running, you know, on-premise environments um, or they're off-premise kind of cloud environments, you know, we host, uh, you know, most of the hyperscalers in, you know, across our portfolio so you know we've become you know we've become a real expert at you know solving real estate problems for our customers uh you know building and reusing infrastructure for our customers but also managing you know their environments where you know they still have a need to be you know on premise or you know manage you know highly distributed edge uh, edge infrastructure and so we've built you know, the tools, the organization structure, you know, the the way that we approach, you know, sort of financing and investment, we've built the entire company around, uh, you know, around that premise of, you know, helping customers just, you know, do all of these things much more effectively than if they did it on their own.
0: On that note, have you found that your customers have changed over the last few years as we've seen that move towards cloud? Are you seeing more variety of customers coming to you to ask for your services?
1: Yes, is the short answer. And I think some of the changes for us have been actually very unexpected. Um, You know, most organizations 10 years ago or maybe seven years ago said we're moving to the cloud. Um, Seven years on, they're saying exactly the same thing. We're moving to the cloud. It's just that the cloud has become a different thing to what they thought it was or what they were hoping it might be seven years ago. So moving to the cloud seven years ago was we were going to close everything. We were going to get out of all of our buildings and we were going to put all of our workloads in the cloud. And then I think in that time, a number of things happened. Um, I think a lot of organizations came to the conclusion that a lot of workloads couldn't be moved to the cloud. They were either, you know, sort of, you know, technologically not architected in the right way or they had regulatory requirements that needed them to be physically present either in a specific building or in a specific country. Um, But there was also another thing, and I think a lot of organizations realized, not that it was any great surprise, but I think they realized that the cloud is actually not cheap, Um, but it is extremely convenient. Um, And so organizations ultimately have to make the trade-off between do they want convenience or do they want cheap? Um, You know, and that's been something that they've been thinking about for some time. Now, because it's expensive, it doesn't mean that they sort of suddenly came up with the, oh, well, let's not move to the cloud, because that's not the right uh, outcome. But I think they started to think through, you know, what does infrastructure management look like for us in this new world? The other thing that also changed, though, is technology. So, you know, the the, you know the growth in, in mobile devices and the number of mobile users, the growth of you know IOt especially in the industrial space, uh, the growth of 5g you know as a as a very low latency high bandwidth connectivity platform means that things like highly distributed services for autonomous vehicles, for example, or even highly distributed content delivery or application delivery platforms for consumers, have now become possible, and that sort of created a requirement for infrastructure to be much more distributed, much more uh, and by the way, distributed in many smaller pieces, um, you know, which is, I guess, at a high level, the whole concept of edge. So it's not necessarily that people have said I'm not moving to the cloud. It's just as I said, the, the you know the, the sort of definition of cloud has changed. It's no longer you know one big you know 200 megawatt capacity block in Northern Virginia. It might now actually be 500, 200 kilowatt blocks distributed in every metro, you know that an organisation needs to access its customer base, um, and and that I think that's been the big change and. Interesting enough, going back to kind of you know skills and our industry, the those organizations that had the need of that infrastructure didn't invest, didn't want to invest, didn't need to, frankly, in you know, being good operating companies as it comes to infrastructure. Um, you know, and so the need to partner with you know with companies like Server Farm has increased. Um, although so has the need for us, by the way, to bring in. You know not just the right tools and technology but also the right people to be able to do this work. Um, so you know we love the we love the fact that the industry is changing we love the fact that our customers needs are changing uh, but that's not to say that you know we don't have many more challenges now than
0: you know we had seven years ago. Yeah, there's a new challenge every day in this sector I think I think it, really- is. Yeah, it keeps us on our toes. Yeah, definitely. Another point I wanted to touch on is is you recently announced your your new development in Israel. And um, that's a region that I don't think a lot of people know about and understand the importance of it. So I just wanted to touch on that quickly. Can you explain kind of why you made the decision to enter that market?
1: Uh, Sure. It's, um, I guess, so at a very high level, Andy, I think what drives us in terms of where should we be is what our customers ask us for. Um, so we don't, you know, we have no desire to go into a market and make it. That's that's not our business. Um, you know, there are some organizations that do that. Uh, that's not what, you know, that's not what our focus is. So we'll ultimately go where our customers say we should go. Now, we also know, by the way, the market is growing very quickly. So most of our customers are telling us that we'd like to go everywhere. Um, now, that's not to say that we will go everywhere. So we have to also recognize that you have to have some competence in a market that you go into, pick Africa as, for it as an example. You know, there is requirement, for example, to build data center infrastructure in Zambia. Now, is that a real requirement? Absolutely. Does it require, you know, a high degree of competence and capability to go and develop that infrastructure and operate it? Absolutely. Would server fund do it? No, because we don't have competence in Zambia. So why Israel? Actually, we have a huge amount of competence in Israel because the ownership structure of Server Farm is ultimately an Israeli real estate family. We know the Israeli real estate market really well, and um, we know how it works. We know, um, you know, how regulations work. You know, as an example, um, and you know, another organization recently went into. Uh, Israel and decided that they would sort of try and test, you know, the regulatory model, and and that involved having a site, you know, to be, you know, to be sort of shut down from a construction perspective. So, you know, it's very very well structured. It's highly disciplined, and you have to go through the process. You have to work with the, you know, the regulators and the authorities to do this. And so, you know, Israel in particular, I think, is a great example of where a customer expresses a need for you know for capacity in a market Um, and we have some demonstrable competence to say yep we have the ability to do that Now, a couple of interesting things about israel so about three or four years ago the the total amount of multi-tenant sort of colo capacity in israel was was under 30 megawatts we're expecting that in about two years from now it's probably going to be more like 200 and part of that is because of what Israel is doing, like many countries are doing, uh, in terms of regulatory requirements around you know, data protection and uh, data sovereignty. But Israel also you know, is at the center of you know, quite a big sort of transformation as far as sort of diplomacy is concerned in the Middle East. You know, the normalization of, of ties with you know, countries like the UAE you know, now starting to see organizations that are saying, well, you know, I might want to have two data centers in the Middle East. One in the UAE is my primary and one in Israel is my DR or vice versa, depending on where the country is headquartered uh, or where the company is headquartered. So I think we're going to see a lot more of that. Um, you know, genuinely hope that we will, by the way, because it's called good. Um, you know, it's a, it, it's a sort of a good thing all around, you know, not just for, you know, for commerce, but also for people. Um. And, you know, thinking through sort of, you know, the other markets that we go into, uh, whether it's our expansion plans in London, whether it's our expansion plans in the Netherlands, uh, Germany, France. Ultimately, they're always focused on on regions where, you know, we we have some existing competence, partly to do, you know, with the shared ownership structure that Server Fund has with, you know, for example, the Park Plaza Hotel Group. Um, you know, that gives us access to, you know, real estate markets and real estate know-how that's, you know, very, very important.
0: And is that what you see next for Server Farm then, you know, kind of just further growth in those markets where you have that capability and experience?
1: Uh, yeah, basically, yes. So, so growth in, uh, in North America, both in the US and Canada, for exactly that reason, existing footprint, existing competence. Uh, and by the way, of course, customer demand—you know—for additional capacity or additional services in those areas, uh, the UK, uh, Netherlands, uh, Germany, and France, uh, from a European standpoint, you know, those would be the sort of four—you know—primary countries, um, and then Israel as as a sort of a hub for you know our growth in the Middle East. Um, so, you know, we'll look at opportunities in, in places like Jordan uh, or Saudi Arabia uh, or UAE, you know, as, as part of that. It's going to keep you busy anyway. Yes, but also I think, you know, the point, I guess the point is that, you know, we we always will remain focused. You know, we're not going to attempt to do, you know, 20 developments in 20 countries. Um. You know and this might sound like an odd thing we we're very very firmly focused in israel to be the first data center to be built on time and on budget neither of those two things have ever happened in israel before um and so it's you know it's not a question by the way that we go to the market and tell the market how it should behave i think this is really you know on the basis that we already have confidence in israel I think that's a reflection of of how this works. Israeli organizations that have built data centers have not succeeded on those two fronts for a whole bunch of reasons. International companies that have gone to Israel without having competence in Israel have also failed on both of those two fronts. So I think the magic really is having someone that knows how to design and construct, but also knows Israel well.
0: Definitely. I think that um, sort of experience is probably undervalued, isn't it? And and in a growth sector like this, where people are seeing opportunity everywhere, because let's be realistic, there is opportunity and there is demand everywhere. It's very easy to go off track from your strategy and, and enter a region. And then kind of six months in, you're realizing that actually that probably wasn't the right decision. It, it, it absolutely. And also the the, the the sort of
1: opposite side of that is also very easy to go into a country and assume you can do there what you've done in other countries. Because, you know, I'm not sure having read My God's Graves and Scholars, I'm 100 percent sure that hasn't happened for at least 20,000 years. So you know, I'm not sure why it should suddenly be true now.
0: Uh, definitely, and I'm, I'm going to have to read the book now as well. And keep yeah, talking about it.
1: Fascinating book. Yeah,
0: um, I wanted to get your views on a few other topics, kind of before we close up. Because I know you know you're very passionate about the sector and a number of a number of different subjects. Sustainability we've touched on a few times, and like you said, you know it's really important for server farm. It's also something you're really passionate about. I read an article that you wrote a, a while back about the greenest data center is the one that's never built, which I'll share as well. Which I thought was you know fascinating insight. But do you just want to kind of quickly explain kind of why sustainability is important to you and also what the sector needs to do to, to improve it?
1: Yeah. Well, I think the, the why, actually, that's a really tough question. You know, why is sustainability important? I, I think sustainability is important to everyone. Um, and I think our our approach to it, you know, we we've, we've simply ensured that it's always in front of us as something for us to think about. You know, ultimately, all of us that work at Silver Farm, you know, have have families. So, you know, at least in my, you know, in in sort of my, you know, view of the world, I'm always trying to figure out, well, what am I going to leave behind? And you know, and the last thing I want to leave behind is a mess that someone else has to clear up. Um, you know, I wasn't, you I know, mean, I wasn't brought up that way, and and I haven't brought, you know, we haven't brought up our children in that way. And that, that I think is important. But ultimately. If you have sustainability as one of the things that drives you, it forces you to think about problems in a slightly different way. It forces you to be creative. It forces you to be flexible. Um, And we've always known and we've always been very good at continuing to prove the model to ourselves and to our customers that reusing existing infrastructure is good. It's good for our customers, both financially and from a sustainability perspective. It makes a lot of sense. It is very, very, very rare that we have to force a customer to compromise in any way. They always get the type of capacity they need. They always get the amount of capacity they need. They always get the amount of latency or connectivity that they need. And for the vast majority of our customers and the vast majority of cases, we avoid building a new data center. Um, You know, if I look at, let's let's pick the UK as an example. So inside of the M25, there's probably something in the region of 250 megawatts of stranded capacity sitting in existing enterprise data centers. Well, 250 megawatts is a big number. And all it needs is, you know, a creative organization like ServerFund to look at a building and say, okay, I know how I can solve that problem. And the nice thing about that model is we're actually solving problems for multiple people at the same time. We're solving problems for the existing enterprise owner who says, "Okay, I now have this huge building that I'll never use and I can't use. What do I do with it? Because I still have to pay for it. So we solve the problem for them. We solve the problem for our customers who need capacity quickly in tight markets. Because, uh, you know, someone's saying, I need 10 megawatts in the city centre of London. Well, that's a three-year project if you have land and if you can get permission. Neither of those two things are, you know, are, are mostly remotely possible. Um, you know, and we solve problems from a sustainability perspective by, well, no concrete arrives at the site. There's no new steel. There's no glass. Um, you know, there might be new infrastructure infrastructure. Um, but we're always trying to figure out how do we how do we create capacity in the market and buy, you know, the lower the smallest amount of equipment and the easiest way, as I said, to do that is really to reuse, you know, existing buildings.
0: I guess it's just like well, we talked about it before we came online. Like just thinking differently, isn't it? It's about you know looking for multiple solutions rather than the obvious solution.
1: And and I think you know it's. You know, we're still, we're still a young industry um, and there is, you know, and, and I don't intend, I, I really don't mean this to be a pejorative term, but there is a lot of vanilla in this space. There is a lot of, oh, we have a standard design. I mean, I, I you know, and of course, you know, there should be standardization in design principles. There should be standardization of operating models. But the concept of this sort of universal design, I can sort of plop that anywhere and it'll be great. You know, maybe that's an okay model, but for the vast majority of cases, that involves building a new building because, you know, that design has to be accommodated in a building that is probably a standard sort of shape and size. Um, and not all enterprise data centers where there is good high quality capacity and good high-quality connectivity were built as a block warehouse. A lot of them were mixed use buildings. So I think, you know, that creativity is really important. Um, and like I said before, I think it's, you know, there's a sort of a, a necessity being the mother of all inventions Sort of philosophy to this is if you don't have sustainability looking at you in the mirror every day, well, it's easy to ignore it and say, yeah, I'm just going to plonk a new block over here. Um, so I think, you know, for us, it's really by just making sure that we don't lose sight of the fact that that is one of the most important things, not just for us as a company, but for us as an industry and actually for us as a species.
0: Uh, definitely. And it brings us quite nicely onto talent as well, because bringing in those new ideas and bringing in the younger generation that actually are a lot more focused on sustainability than some of us are because you know, they've been brought up with it around them and, and as a challenge. What do you think the sector needs to do to, you know, to attract more people to come and join us in the industry? Um, I think so.
1: I, I think the. You know, the, there are sort of some, some obvious things, um, you know, at least from a from an engineering perspective that make make the industry sort of interesting, you know, because there is ultimately always an ongoing you know, technical challenge. in how should I design that system? Is there a better way of designing the system? But I think the fact that, that you, know, you know, the younger generation is much more tuned into, you know, into sustainability, although I still, you know, we still find ourselves telling our kids to turn off lights. I don't know if that is ever going to be a problem that goes away. Um, but I think that sort of mix of people that, that have strong, you know, technical skills, but are also driven by, you know, doing it in the most sustainable way possible, Um, I think that that talent base exists. What doesn't currently exist, I think, is a good enough understanding of the sector in a way that makes it an attractive proposition for someone to go into. Um, And I think, by the way, I think that is a much broader engineering issue. You know, it's a STEM issue. It's not just a data center issue is, you know, social media influencer has become a career now, that's not to say that it's a it's a good or a bad choice. Um, and, you know, it's ultimately about making sure that, you know, we as an industry continue, you know, to help people understand what we do. Why are we important? Um, utility companies are important. You know, power generation is important and they have the same challenge and they're 100 years older than us as an industry. So I think there's a much bigger Part of making sure that you know the sort of technology platform, the infrastructure foundation of of society, you know, becomes much more visible, becomes much more obvious. Um, you know, Andy, that's a really, really long way of me saying I don't know the answer to the question, um, and I don't think I don't think many of us in the industry do. It's a tough one. I think it's promoting ourselves it's making sure that we are involved in in education as much and by the way i don't mean education as in i'm going to write a white paper i'm going to hope 100 people read it no this is about us actively taking a role in how young people are educated Um, you know both of my sons have visited a data center but before they visited that they had no idea what one was because they were never taught it at school Um, and so I think there is a, a sort of a bigger question to ask in you know, from an education perspective. Do, do young people have enough visibility of what infrastructure looks like? And I'm talking about infrastructures in transportation and roads and utilities. And, you know, does a 15 year old person typically understand how drainage works? Now, I don't need them to be an expert on drainage, but it's just the concept of infrastructure that, you know, things that are usually very invisible to people. Uh, you know, sometimes need to be made, you know, much more visible in terms of, you know, how they work, why they exist, and, you know, how we all benefit from them. Um, and the data centre industry is just, you know, one part of that infrastructure story.
0: I totally agree. And I think it, it brings us back to the book, to be totally honest, you know, why why did you get into archaeology? It was the visibility of archaeology through the book. Indiana Jones, no, no doubt had a big impact. And a lot of our decisions are influenced by things like that. And if the sector is invisible then that's never going to happen and that was basically the main reason why I started this podcast was because it it was probably too invisible so there's a lot of great work being done now but I totally agree with your point about you know really getting involved with the education is a massive piece that that we can all try and do something that will help the future
1: yeah and, and you're absolutely right you know the book the book is actually a great example Because, you know, like I kind of sort of read out that sort of first line that, you know, the book wasn't trying to be, you know, an academic tone. By the way, the guy that wrote it is an extremely academic person, you know, but he made that sort of, I guess he turned, you know, he turned the sort of factual, you know, knowledge into, you know, into a story. Uh, By the way, he hasn't drifted away from fact. I think it's just the way in which the story is told. And I think that's the thing. you know if we go into education and say, let me show you a single line diagram, well, we've lost the audience already. Uh, so I think we have to help people understand you know what why does why does infrastructure exist in the way that it does? what's bad about it, what's good about it? and how does you know how how do young people that are looking for options in terms of where to go from a career point of view go, do you know what? there is an industry that's really interesting. And there are some problems that I can solve, and I can have a I can have a hand in in you know what the future looks like.
0: Definitely, and we need to use social media to our advantage. You know, social media is is a data center. Let's be honest, and and all our kids are sitting there on social media all the time. So you know, we should be as a sector. When I say the royal we, we should be all over that sector and um, the social media with regards to this is going to a data center. You know, this is why this is important, and then people will get exposure to it at the moment that that doesn't happen either
1: and and you know it's interesting you know covid you know for all of its you know sort of horrible horrible you know stories has created visibility um now that's not to say that we should create the visibility of social media by you know dropping a couple of data centers and seeing how people miss it but you know somewhere in the middle of that, you know, we have to, you know, we have to create a narrative so that people understand that, you know, every click has a price. It might not be a price that hits your wallet, but it might be a price that hits, you know, our grandchildren's, you know, sort of climate and ability to choose where to live or work. Um, and, you know, and that's that sort of that sort of relationship between you know what we do and what we consume and how we do those things and how we consume things you know has an impact that I think we don't understand we don't look at we it doesn't it's not visible to us.
0: Definitely um, I could talk about that all day because you know something I'm quite passionate about but before we finish up, there's just yep. a couple of questions that I ask everybody at the moment. I'm still asking people for their predictions for 2022, despite it being April now when we're recording this. So, <laughs> do you have any predictions for, let's say, the next 12 months? Uh, more. Do <laughs> you know,
1: um, and I guess I would couch that slightly. So, so more as in more capacity. There is a greater requirement for capacity, and we don't see that changing. Um, I think the shape and size of capacity is changing slightly. And um, the capacity requirements that we're seeing from our customers are much more distributed. You know, this concept of let's put everything in Slough, or well, let's put everything in Frankfurt. People are looking at the UK and France and Germany and the Nordics and the Netherlands and all of the other countries in Europe and the Middle East and saying, well, I need to be in a specific country. Um, but that even that is being refined now. I need to be in a specific city. Um, And again, I think they're reflecting the nature of the consumer. By the way, whether the consumer is a human, you know, or a thing, uh, they're they're recognizing that those consumers don't all live in Frankfurt. They don't all live just outside the slough. Um, And there are certain application workloads and there are certain consumer services that require infrastructure to be, you know, much more widely dispersed. Um, That, by the way, creates an entirely different set of challenges from a real estate perspective, from an energy availability perspective, network connectivity. So, you know, we've we're still we're still young in the industry. We're still in that sort of hyper growth phase. Um, And other than more and distributed, I think, you know, more unpredictability as well. You know, energy security at the moment is a really tough topic, Um, you know, just just having to deal with you know the fluctuations in the energy market, is energy going to be available at what price is it going to be available? you know and 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 what does you know what does sort of a green premium look like now? You know those are all really, really tricky topics.
0: Yeah, definitely, and we won't get into it now because no, no, we will that's, a, that's a very long discussion. We will talk for another hour, and, we, yeah, and yeah. I'm sure you've got other things to do. But final question, I ask everyone on the podcast. But if you could give one piece of advice to anyone looking to work in the data center sector, what would it be? Um, I think look at
1: you know look at the sector as as as, as a career choice. But I think the advice that I would give people is: don't look at the sector as an engineering career choice. The sector, just like every sector that exists, there are requirements for salespeople and finance people and human resources people and marketing people and and real estate people and lawyers. And you know, it's a sector like no like every other sector that that employs people across you know every walk of life, and. But I guess if I was thinking about this sort of slightly selfishly and just sort of replaying some of the conversations that I had, especially with my eldest son, is I think more people that can that we can attract into the sector that can really think big picture, that can look at 20 different viewpoints, consolidate them into a sort of a decision path. I think that's the, you know, those are the sorts of people that we need to attract, not a, you know, we had this engineering design three years ago. I'm just going to fine tune it slightly. You know, we have to really think through, you know, individual problems and, and be creative and flexible with, you know, with individual solutions.
0: Definitely. And I, you know, and, and some advice we I regularly give to kind of some of our customers would be around, like, you know, if you bring in people without experience, you tend to get new ideas. If you're looking right. for people with five years data center experience you're probably going to get the same ideas into your business that you've already got so it's good to have that in your thought process when you are looking to bring new people into your organization yeah
1: absolutely you know there's 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 a sort of an old japanese sort of man well not not so old but you know a japanese management concept of you ask the question why six or seven times to get an answer you some say, someone says something you say why they give you the answer The first answer is the one that they want you, they think you're looking for. And I think that's the question. I think we have to bring people into the sector who come in and say, why? Why do you do it that way? Why on earth did you even start to do it that way and bring solutions, you know, along along with the why?
0: Definitely. And a great way to end the podcast why so we'll we'll leave it there but really enjoyed that conversation today you know great insight to your career also serve a farm as an organization and looking forward to seeing what's next for you uh, when the latest news comes out
1: likewise Andy thank you so much
0: appreciate it good to speak to you